Welcome to Sports Weekly with Ayaz Memon. Hello and welcome to this edition of Sports Weekly. I'm your host, Ayaz Memon. We've had a, a week which has been full of fervor and also a lot of disappointment where the cricket is concerned. A lot of brouhaha and hullabaloo went around the World Test Championship final between India and New Zealand. And we know uh, it didn't end too well for India. We're going to discuss that. We've also got on this edition the update on Euro Cup football on the F1. So Samil is, of course, there with us. Samil Arora for talking on football as well as F1 and also on tennis. Wimbledon is coming up next and we've had some major withdrawals from the tournament. We look at what the prospects hold for that tournament too. But first up is, of course, the WTC final where New Zealand finished top of the pops. They are now the first winners of the World Test Championship final. It's a milestone in their country's cricket history. It's an event or a win which will, I think, have a lasting impact on the sport in New Zealand. Remember, cricket is not the biggest sport in New Zealand. It's rugby, it's athletics, it's, you know, everything else except cricket. But this could be the turnaround moment where New Zealand cricket is concerned. They've been unable to win the 50-over World Cup final in 2019 on the technicality. In this WTC final, there was no need for any technicality at all. They won fair and square and they won handsomely, beating India by eight wickets. Let me now... Quickly introduce my co-hosts. They're not guests any longer. Mr. Fantastic and Somil Arora. Thanks, Ayaz. Great to be here on a not-so-great day for Indian cricket. But there is other sport to celebrate. And because it's such a sad day, we shall all revert to cliches and say that <laughs> sport was the ultimate winner and that was a great test match. Yeah, thank you so much, Ayaz. I wonder if sport was the winner, though. When four days are washed out, I think rain is the winner eventually. But hey... That aside, I think we should all just discuss it well and get over it because this one stings a lot today. <laughs> you know, I just wanted to add a little rider there, Samil and uh, Mr. Fantastic, that look, about 318 or 320 overs were bowled in in this match. Yes, there was an extra day added. You know, it was a 60-day match. But 320 overs, when you look at the pattern generally uh, of play in England, you would usually get a result in 320 Overs, you know, so I think in that sense it's played out. You know, it's, it's been par for the course. These are conditions, English conditions. These are difficult conditions to bat in, and I think somewhere we're going to discuss that. Obviously, the Indian team just didn't seem prepared enough. I think New Zealand were far more efficient, far more combative or competitive, and I would dare say more skillful in all departments of the game, and that says it all in in many ways. You can't really say too much bad. It, it was a stop-start kind of a game. So it's very difficult for teams to keep their bearings, stay focused. But big, big props to the New Zealand team. They just kept fighting. They definitely looked the better equipped and better skilled team. Uh, I also have to call out the leadership for New Zealand as being far, far better and well thought through, especially the way they used Kyle Jamieson on... Uh, the morning of the final day to kind of run through the Indian batting lineup. What do you think really put India on the back foot? Was it the batting, the bowling, or the captaincy, or just the fact that we never had enough time to acclimatize to the conditions? Well, I mean, you know, in hindsight, you can look at many things that maybe if, if this had happened or that had happened, India would have fared better. For instance, winning the toss. In those conditions, you put the other team in, which is what Kohli would have done also, didn't happen. Or the combination, you know, India went in with two spinners, 
maybe they should have played an extra fast bowler but that would have weakened the batting which is something we discussed the previous time in the previous show and practice matches now you know in new zealand went into this match on the back of two test matches india were in the camp or a biosecure bubble playing intra team matches now all of these end up actually becoming excuses when you see how the match panned out over the playing time that we saw two entire days lost because of rain some more encroachment on the other days the last day was the the one on which you got the entire day's play was available because it was bright it was sunny and uh, all four results were possible technically the a tie was the rarest of rare and frankly it was unlikely to happen and india win very remote chances because uh, they had lost already two wickets and uh, a lead of 32 which turned out to be very crucial at one point in time it looked like only a psychological advantage which new zealand might have but not a decisive advantage but it turned out to be decisive finally and then there were the prospects of a new zealand win if they bowled india out on the last morning early enough which is exactly what happened now i i think you know let's not be namby pamby about it i think india was thoroughly outclassed in batting in bowling in in fielding though new zealand also dropped a couple of catches but they took some great ones and at the crucial moments and also in the captaincy you mentioned Ken Williamson I think his stature in international cricket has gone sky high after this match or because of this match in the batting he was always a terrific batsman we knew him to be the equal or at least between the four of them Steve Smith Virat Kohli Joe Root and Ken Williamson there was always this tussle for who's a little better I think Ken Williamson has settled this at least with Kohli for the time being he's just nudged ahead 49 monumental patience not attractive to watch attractive batting just hanging in there grafting to ensure that this team stays spends long enough time in the middle and doesn't get blown away when mohammad shami was in song and ishant was bowling well that was the phase which was india's best phase in the match he hung in there 49 and finally it ended up with new zealand getting a first innings lead and in the second innings 52 not out remember they had lost two wickets and it was a bit of a vulnerable situation for them but then the two seasoned pros ross taylor and ken williamson came together and thwarted everything that the indian team threw at them so i think full marks to ken williamson as a batsman and as a as a captain the field placing he set just to give you a few examples mohammad shami being caught at third man the fielder moved in knowing this guy will go for a slog and knowing precisely virtually where the ball would land up then the way they got rahane in the first innings you know put a fielder there and the next ball rahane pulls straight to that fielder or the way they got ravindra jadeja keep attacking him with short pitch deliveries on the leg stump then angle one across his body he has been peppered with short deliveries he has not had chance to move his feet and then he hangs his bat out and gives a catch so the plotting the planning the resilience when it's needed the flair i might add also here and it's it's not in the context of that's not the reason why we lost but just to give you a picture how they selected the team and why new zealand have been doing well the last four wickets for india in the first innings scored 12 runs that means from 7th 8th 9th 10th wicket falling only 12 runs in four wickets in the second innings 14 runs were added by the last four wickets for new zealand the last four wickets added 59 that's a huge difference and it shows why but that's the match right there that's the match but i'm saying so now so this this is a very telling statistic you know kylie jamison coming in making 21 tim saudi making 30 odd it just makes so much of a difference when you're choosing the team one of the fears that the indian team had was our tail is so poor in batting and it is true 
that we might as well include two all-rounders just to lengthen the batting. Now, having said all that, our tail hasn't done well even in Australia. Or we, actually, they did quite well there, you know. But we have depended yeah. more on uh, the bowlers. But where the biggest failure for India in this match was, and let let's put the blame squarely where it belongs. It's on the top order. You got a batting lineup of, you know, mega stars: Rohit Sharma, Cheteshwar Pujara, Virat Kohli, Ajinkya Rahane. I'm not including Shubman Gill because he's a rookie, he's a newcomer. Rishabh Pant also, which which was the kind of form he had shown in the last six months. He was certainly a guy who, you know, touted as a match winner. Now, 217 and 170 are not scores that befit the reputation of these guys. That means they have underperformed. And frankly, on the last day, what I saw, the manner in which Koji got out, then Pujara, then Ajinkya Rahane, these were all soft dismissals. These were not on unplayable deliveries. These were because of the pressure, the control, the accuracy with which the New Zealand bowlers bowled and induce these errors from the batsmen, not because of unplayable deliveries, but because of the pressure of the situation. They got hustled into making mistakes. And if that is the case, then obviously, uh, one has to say that maybe this mighty reputation needs to be re-examined. Speaking of reputations, I mean, if you look at Pujara, he didn't have a great Australia tour. He's completely failed on this tour when his role very clearly is to blunt the opposition attack. Do you think he's gotten into a situation where he's got a mindset that it's okay to not score so long as he's just standing there? Is there a miscommunication about his role happening here? Well, I think that these are things that will have to be addressed. See, one of the things which I, you know, I think needs to be done, uh, Mr. Fantastic, and I think in the Indian cricket establishment and the Indian cricket system, we don't do it often enough. We don't have accountability. We don't have an audit. I mean, if this match has been lost, and frankly, it was lost badly. It's an eight-wicket victory for New Zealand, which is a thumping win. Thumping win. You know, then what is it that is going to happen from here subsequently? Yes, there's an English tour coming up, five test matches against England. But are reasons going to be found? Why are batting stuttered and collapsed ignominiously in both innings? From 146 for three... Had we made 275 or 300, you would have won this match. Exactly. So, here's what's kind of also important. Looking forward, okay, maybe Kohli's own form is worth looking at. He's not been the same force he was until last year. Sure, lockdown, personal changes, all of that is fine. But if we want Kohli, the batsman, to be the power and the foot or the force that he is or he can be, Maybe it's time to take the captaincy away from him. Maybe it's time for India to have three captains, you know. Let Rohit Sharma be the ODI specialist captain or maybe even the T20 specialist captain given he's actually had more success in winning titles as a captain. Let Rahane, who's shown what he's capable of as skipper in Australia, lead the side in the test format for a while given he only plays in the test side. Uh, And let Kohli just focus on his batting, get form back. We know he's an inspirational leader, but I think he's more valuable as a batsman. Well, I think a lot of things have to be examined or re-examined, what you mentioned about Kohli. Look, it's it's the third or fourth time he's kind of not won a final or even a semi-final against New Zealand. We saw in the World Cup, the Champions Trophy in 2017. If nothing else, it looked like they might share the spoils. You know, what India needed to do was bat out two sessions. Take the total to about... 200, have a lead of 170, the overs reduced for New Zealand to chase. Or if they want to chase, they have to take more risks. But if you give them a target of 139 and enough overs to get, they paced it so well. 
So the role of the coach, the captain in such situations, why is it that this is a, not the first time we've been to England. The same set of players were there in 2018. Some of them were also there for, in 2014, like Rahane, like Virat Kohli. In 2014, they were in England, 2018. Why is it that, you know, on a pitch, seeming track like this, just it can happen. But why is it that Jasprit Bumrah didn't get a single wicket? Is he still yeah. not fully back to his best from injury? And now when you look back, in a, when you got six, seven bowlers, all of them like seam bowlers, you don't have a swing bowler. Why is somebody like Bhuvaneshwar Kumar, why was he left behind? You look at the New Zealand attack. You got Tim Saudi, he's a genuine swing bowler. Trent Bolt can swing and seam the ball. Neil Wagner is the kind of guy who can dig it in short. I mean, I thought he bowled a marvellous spell. The ball is about 45-50 years old. It's gone soft to repeatedly bounce it off the body and the chest of the batsman is not easy. You have to put in a lot of effort. And then there's Kyle Jameson who gets the ball to swing and seam coming from 6 feet 8. The entire attack is so well complemented that there's no escape route. While in India's case, what we found was there was a bit of a, uh, you know, much of a muchness about all the bowlers. So Shami was the most skillful. He looked the most impressive. And he had a purple patch in the match when he picked up four wickets, you know, in very quick succession. That was the time when India came back into the match. Then, of course, the New Zealand tail wagged. They got a lead of 32 runs. And from there on, it was just a match that India had to kind of cling on to. to, I think the first purpose should have been to save. Was there enough strong tactic? Was there enough strong technical expertise that was put into saving the match? Or were they just hustled? I think it was the latter case. It was just hustled into mistakes. And that does not reflect well on a batting lineup which reads of all these big stars. Look, taking nothing away from their achievements, but the World Test Champion final, inaugural one, this was the moment for leaving a lasting legacy. Everybody remembers the 1975 World Cup and remembers Clive Lloyd because that was the inaugural one or Mahendra Singh Dhoni winning the T20 World Cup in 2007. These are epochal moments, if I might say so. And that has slipped from Kohli's grasp and India's grasp. Absolutely. I think it's a leadership challenge. The England tour will be a fairly difficult one for India if this itself continues. Well, I think it's also worth figuring out what that next part of this India tour looks like and what the Sri Lanka tour is lining up to be. There's a few players in Sri Lanka who might do better in England, if you ask me. Well, you know, I, I think there's certainly a case for, it's not just about introspection, but it's also about post-mortem and audit, as I mentioned at the start. See, you get into Mantan and Chintan and all that is, is fine, which is an ongoing process. But you must evaluate players, the coaches, the support staff, the captaincy after each assignment. And you may find no fault or any major fault. And you, or you might find minor mistakes which can be corrected. But at least that process, that exercise has to be done. What was the preparation? What was the mindset? What was the tactic that was employed? In the old days, I remember there used to be a, a manager's report on the team. You know, and they, you, the manager would submit a report on the players, how they performed, what did they do, how was their mindset was their discipline, including the behavioral part. Now, all that, I think there's some virtue in going back to the old, with the new modern approach, of course, but you must have an audit. So you must examine what went wrong with the Indian top order, certainly. What did the selectors do? Was the squad well chosen when you have, you know, so many bowlers of a similar kind? Would it have been more helpful to have a swing bowler like a Bhuvneshwar Kumar in? I mean, these are all ways of examining and analyzing things. 
or are there some players who are headed for Sri Lanka who might actually have been good value in this match? And okay, if they're not there in this match, are they better value playing against England in the Test series? Because uh, after all, everybody's talking of the primacy of Test cricket, including the Indian cricket establishment and most certainly Virat Kohli. So maybe you make it a point that you do everything to make sure you win the Test series against England and not end up again uh, on the losing side. Absolutely. Well, lots to work there for uh, the team behind the scenes more than on the ground. Absolutely. I think there's a lot that has to be done in the cricket establishment itself. The selection committee, there must be a, a conversation with the captain and the coach because they're not going to come back till September. And then, you know, the things can completely quieten down and then it becomes history. So, I think that there is a need for the review and post-mortem mechanism to be put in place with a sense of urgency and timeliness. So, it should not be pushed to late September, then you run into the IPL, then you run into World T20 and then it's put off indefinitely. Nowadays, in this age of communication that we live in, it should not be uh, such a problem for having a Zoom call or a con call to examine what went wrong, get everybody's inputs in and uh, put it down and, uh, as a document and present it to the BCCI. Absolutely. Well, moving on from the cricket, it's time to look at some of the other sports. So, the Olympics, well, let's move on from the cricket and take a look at what's happening around the world. The Olympics are almost here and there's good news, but only for domestic spectators in Japan who will now be allowed to be present, but not entirely fill out the stadium. Only 50% of a venue's capacity can be filled and that to up to 10,000. So if a venue has a capacity of 50,000, you'll still only have 10,000 people there. Not too bad. At least the athletes will not be running to or performing uh, to empty seats. I, I think that's a positive sign and just tells us, Ayaz, that the Olympics will happen. Yeah, I think it's now more or less uh, certain that the Olympics will happen unless something major flares up, sudden wave or something in Japan. But what one can only hope for, and fingers crossed, is that nothing happens while the games are on because that could end up becoming a, a huge disaster. So, yes, all precautions have to be put into place. All things that could trigger crisis need to be addressed. The people in Japan, as we know, are divided. And uh, if the effort is still on to go ahead with the games, then obviously all health precautions have to be paramount. It has to be almost foolproof in, in as much as it can be. Absolutely. So looking forward to that event as well coming uh, very soon. Uh, I think it's time to move on to the Euros and bring Somil to chat about what's happening over in Europe. Yeah, I'm waiting to hear you guys talk about it. Absolutely. So, we've now got Somil Arora with us and Somil, there's a lot of action happening beyond just the cricket and uh, the upcoming Olympics, isn't there? I mean, uh, the Euros are up in full swing. We've had some amazing finishes to some of the groups. There was a Formula 1 race, which I think was probably one for the ages. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've got Wimbledon just about, well, a few days away as of today. Let's start with the Euros. What do you think is happening there? And who do you think is a favourite? And this time, I really do want you to pick a winner. <laughs> It's been pandemonium so far. Let's talk about all the teams in depth for a second. Netherlands, Italy and Belgium are the only three teams that have won all of their group stage games. It's a different matter that all of them didn't have the most representative opponents in the world. But still, it's still quite an achievement. And then comes the matter of England and Italy being the only teams not to have conceded a single goal so far. Actually, these two were at the start of the tournament somewhat favourites. So let's speak about them for a second. For Italy, 
I mean, it's not like watching Roberto Firmino's name at the top of the most successfully executed tackles in the defensive half. I mean, sure, he can do it well, but he's known for something completely different, and that is attacking. And it's so lovely to see Italy not conceding a goal so far, but they will be having quite the test sometime soon. More on that in a second. And then for England, well, when they came into the tournament, Roy, when you see their squad, when you see that star power in that team, you really may feel like, oh, England, I think they're going to go at least, if not all the way, at least to the semi-finals. But they've done it again. They're finishing second in the group. And this stat that I mentioned earlier on, it just really blurs the reality behind their campaign so far. They've got two tough 1-0 wins ahead of Croatia and Czech Republic. But drawing to Scotland... Scotland are seemingly their less competent younger siblings and that caused quite the frenzy back in the UK. And at this stage, they genuinely need their forwards, especially Harry Kane, to start firing. They're not in the most comfortable position in the world at this stage, England. And I think it's going to be a bit hard for the cup to come home again, if I may put it that way. But at least they can try the fans. At least they can constantly back the team and support them all the way through. You know, they had no chance of... Uh, really hoping for any change to the next round, no matter where they finished, so long as they qualified. Their options <laughs> are going to be the Netherlands or Spain or, well, yeah. old old enemy Germany again now. And <laughs> having look at history and how many times England has lost to Germany in knockouts of mm. FIFA tournaments. Maybe another one coming up, who knows. But the round of 16 has some unbelievable matches. You've got the Dutch playing the Czech Republic. You've got Belgium versus Portugal, which should be absolutely amazing. And you've got England versus Germany. I think <laughs> I think that the Danes lucked out because they now get to face Wales. Mm -hmm. uh, Sweden should get past Ukraine fairly easily. Spain-Croatia is going to be another really close match, but I do expect Spain to kind of beat out Tired and an aging Croatia. Italy-Austria should be a one-sided walk in the park for Italy given their current form. What do you think? Agree with those predictions? I think I do. I think I genuinely do. And so far, I think Germany and England is going to be the one interesting match. As you mentioned, history genuinely favouring Germany on this one. But it's a funny thing. Germany have been playing with no pressure. I mean, at least seemingly in terms of their football at all. They've just been attacking, attacking, attacking. And I was thinking about this yesterday. I was thinking about this group of death per se, about Portugal, France and Germany. And they've been a lot like three drunk mates walking into a bar who end up drinking more. It's not Coca-Cola, water, Heineken kids that I'm talking about here. And they decide to have a competition to see who can punch each other's heads off. And they've been doing just that. There's not been a single dull match so far. I mean, we all saw what happened between Portugal and Germany a few days ago, where Portugal lost 4-2 in a match where they scored four goals. The only problem, two of them were actually in the wrong net. And then we saw that crazy match between France and Portugal yesterday, where we had three penalties. And it was not mostly due to scrappy defending. There's a little bit of that. It's largely due to some refereeing, which many thought was very controversial. And so this group of death, well, all three of the top teams are going to qualify from there. But they've had some major learnings so far. They've literally come out of this battered and bruised and let's see if they have any more left in the knockout stages. Absolutely. And I don't think Germany really looks the champion part. They yeah. struggled against Hungary. I mean, they had to come back from behind twice. And had that second goal not happened, we probably wouldn't have had Germany in the knockout stages. Who knows? So they True. made it that hard on themselves. But by the time we speak next week, this would be down to the final eight. And I'm actually putting my money on Belgium. Same. 
to actually go all the way and take home the trophy they look the most balanced the hungriest and to be very honest the most talented out of all the teams playing before 2014 belgium never were the big powers right they always had decent enough players good enough to get to the round of 16 but now when you look at the teams that they're playing in when you look at how important those national team players are to the club sides as well i think it's a bit of a travesty in a sporting sense that they haven't won anything since 2014 this has to has to be their best chance absolutely well that action continues to unfold over this weekend and the next week as well that will be exciting speaking of exciting though how was the formula 1 race this weekend what happened in france and is verstappen on his way to winning the championship yes i think max verstappen is but maybe because it's a 23 race season and we're already just six races done Uh, to put this into context the formula 1 season normally ends in the middle of november with some decent gaps in the middle of races this year it ends 10 days before christmas december the 15th that is ridiculously long so even though we may feel like verstappen is going to be the champion right now 23 races or not 23 but a couple of them have been cancelled out but whatever it's a long long year this one and i i can be that guy i can say that oh hamilton is good enough he can bounce back but he genuinely can because that's how the development was can end up being i mean you look at 2018 sebastian vettel was on his way to being the champion in that first half of the season hockenheim happened we all know what happened next hamilton dominated so never count him out but in terms of the momentum right now mr fantastic Verstappen and Red Bull just executed a strategic masterclass in France. They completely caught Mercedes off guard on the strategy front, ended up taking a win even after Verstappen lost his lead on the first lap, and they took the win with only 5 laps to go. That was a crazy good race on the whole. But do you think this comes down to driver skill or car management by respective teams? What what would you put this win down to? The latter. Uh Even Valtteri Bottas, Mercedes' second driver, who's normally known to be a lot more docile in situations like this one, he actually came out on the team radio and said, I'm paraphrasing, if I didn't paraphrase, there would be some explicatives and the podcast could be banned, but he said, I told you guys that this one is going to be a two-stopper, which means that the race should ideally have two pit stops, but he didn't listen to me. And then a few more like, interesting words, to put it that way. And Bottas never does that. Bottas is quiet. Bottas works with the team. Bottas is all chill. And this strategy mistake by Mercedes actually caught out both their drivers. Hamilton ended up finishing second when he could have won. Bottas ended up being costed a podium because Red Bull's Sergio Perez ended up getting P3. And here, there's a reason why Mercedes actually couldn't get it properly. you might be you might be wondering well formula 1 teams have so much data no they're they're having so many calculations so many interesting predictions that they must know that this race is there one stop or a two stop but early in the morning it actually rained which means that all the rubber on the track was washed out so the grip levels on the track were not nearly as the same plus the weather changed it was a lot cooler and the tire predictions became a bit different and so mercedes at that one split second they did not make the right decision and it cost them the win well two more races over the next two weekends yes. what's your prediction and both in austria by the way yes red bull ring is the circuit i think i'm going to go for red bull this time because red bull have traditionally looked very strong at their literal home circuit but there's a bull right in the middle of a circuit believe you me so i i think i'm going to go for max this time finally i'm not fence sitting on this podcast mr fantastic 
Good to hear that. And well, are we handing over to the championship already or do we expect a very strong fight back from the Mercedes? Uh, good question. We, we know that Toto's not the kind to sit back. He'll yes. probably take this personally more than anything. Uh, the thing is, there might be some internal problems within the team. Bottas is not happy. Hamilton also was frustrated. The team I like to look at is that Mercedes have never had championship competition ever since coming back. Never have them been challenged externally in such a way. So I don't think they're sharp. I mean, it's a bit odd to say, right? Saying that Mercedes is not sharp enough. But maybe they may not be. Maybe they're just getting used to having such an intense rival. So they will fight back. They're seven-time world champions. But will it be too little too late is my worry. Well, time will tell. Let's wait to find out. But let's switch uh, now to, to Wimbledon, which is coming up not too far uh, from when, when we speak now. Uh, how, do you, how do you see this going, uh, Wimbledon, this year, Samil? It's going to be fun <laughs> on every single side, right? On the male side, let's... Oh, no, it's not males anymore, is it? It's the Gentlemen's Singles Championship. <laughs> and <laughs> it is crazy. So on the surface, it may seem a little less star-studded because Nadal has pulled out of Wimbledon and the Olympics to focus more on his body. Again, totally justified. Age is a thing, right? You can't deny that. Dominic Thiem has pulled out of the uh, tournament as well because he suffered a wrist injury in the middle of the Mallorca Open. And the very interesting fact heading into Wimbledon this year is that out of all the 32 men to be seeded, only six, Djokovic, Federer, Batista Agut, David Goffin, Zygot Dimitrov, and John Isner have ever progressed as far as the quarterfinals. Then you've got new names coming up like Berrettini, like Sitsipas, who was quite drained at the end of the Roland Garros final. How will they perform in this case? And Berrettini has been superb in all the tournaments leading up to Wimbledon. Does he have enough energy? Because only a couple of weeks ago, Mr. Ayaz, we were in the clay season. We were right in the middle of it. It takes a completely different game style to adapt to grass. And here they are already, firstly burned out from Roland Garros, then having to go straight away into Wimbledon. It is going to be intense, but on the surface at least, it looks like Djokovic with his experience could be the favourite to defend his title in 2019. Remember, 2020 didn't even happen last year. Djokovic is aiming for a golden slam, a rare opportunity for most players. If anything, this small gap between the French and the Wimbledon could be his biggest enemy. He's had a fantastic clay court season. He capped it off with a mind-blowing win in the final over Tsitsipas. Tsitsipas should really have just won that. But now, barely two weeks later, he's got to adjust his game, come back, have the same hunger, which no one doubts he has, and stand up to a lot of folks. Now, remember, guys like Berrettini didn't go very deep in the French Open, which means they've had more recovery time. Berrettini has, in fact, been on fire on grass. He just won a tournament. And he, if you ask me, he's someone who I would say should at least make the semis, if not go further. We're probably seeing the start of the next big name in Matteo Berrettini. Nadal pulling out, Federer being about 25% of what he usually should be. And no one else worthy to challenge him. I think Djokovic's best and worst chance is this Wimbledon. Well, you know, we've talked about the different surfaces and how players have to adjust. It's a bit like, you know, playing cricket in the subcontinent and then in England. And if you don't make the adjustments, you suffer. But, you know, where Djokovic is concerned, I think, you know, the fact that he's won majors twice over everywhere would obviously mean that he's got the expertise and the confidence to win on whatever surface he plays. So, this is really Djokovic's tournament to lose with no Nadal, Federer, 
sadly on the downswing if i may say so and i'm saying that with a lot of risk because remember this is the favorite surface and there might be the last flicker of the flame before it goes off uh, it almost seems tragic to talk like that about federer but we all have to retire at some stage so i think the men section some really good young names coming up i think dokovic is challenged and then i'm saying this from the outside you guys are bigger tennis followers the mental toughness that he's shown even in winning the french open is going to be his biggest ally you know he's fought back from two sets down including in the final a match before that when you win matches like that it's not just about expertise or talent it's about desire it's about mental toughness you get strength in your legs when you, the opponent least expects it so that is something that will be i think the biggest thing that his opponents will have to overcome how do you beat dokovic in the mind that's really the big challenge Yeah. Well, I don't think Djokovic is going to win it. I think he's <laughs> going to fall significantly short of it. Uh and not just because I'm always rooting for a new winner, but I just think that the adjustment from clay to grass is going to be too much to handle in such a short period of time. I'm also highly un- uh, doubtful of any big name winning it. We might just see a first time winner this year. Let's hope for that. On the women's side though, there is more trouble. We don't really know who's to root for. We've had different winners over the past years. Uh yes, some of the big names will be back. Serena Williams is still there. She's ranked she's seeded rather number 7. Again, not someone whom I expect uh, to go very far. Well, that's definitely going to be a new winner because players like Iga Swiatek or even Ash Barty are not in the best of form. I don't think a lot of players are mentally strong enough right now to go through whatever is happening around them and focus on their game. So it's going to be a tough one. You can't blame the players. These are tough times uh, in general for everybody. But what is for sure is we're back on the greens. It's a much much visually pleasing tournament and let's hope for some really good tennis. Also, one very interesting thing, right? The last time we came at Wimbledon, Coco Goff made headlines around the world she beat venus williams in the very first round she is seeded this time she's not an unseeded player makes me feel embarrassed she's a year younger to me and she's already seeded at wimbledon but that's just the way she plays that's just how good she is and also one more point about barbora krichikova i mean she just won roland garros she's not taken part in any tournament so the the adaptation could be a bit tricky but she's had enough rest she's not celebrated like crazy or anything like that and has trained quite hard in the lead up to wimbledon and you might be wondering well does she know a little bit about grass is she good over there in 2018 krichikova won the doubles at wimbledon so she knows exactly what's going on and with the confidence of winning a first grand slam maybe we may just have a first time wimbledon winner here on the singles side And on a parting note, there might just be some India representation in the men's draw yes. with Ramkumar Ramnathan yeah. just one game away from qualifying for the main draw. He's scheduled to play Michael Polmans, who's the 32nd seed, uh, as we record. And let's hope we're able to discuss his progress on our next episode. Right, guys, it was great to have you again on the show, Mr. Fantastic. As always, you've been fantastic, and Samuel Arora is repertoire is expanding boundlessly. Uh, from F1 to tennis to football, there's so much insight and expertise coming through, and it's always a pleasure to talk to both you guys. With that, and without much ado, let me sign off for this week. We'll catch up again in the next edition of Sports Weekly, same time, same day, next week. <laughs>